Amen. How many of you get lost driving sometimes? Or sometimes you take roads driving and you aren't quite sure you're going to reach the destination. When I was 23, the day I turned 23 actually, I started an internship in Virginia, uh, right under D.C. in a city called Alexandria. And I was going to go out there and I was going to be there about six months. It was right before I came to this church. And my parents decided they were going to drive out with me in my car and then fly back. They wanted to see where I'd be living. They wanted to help me move my stuff into where I'd be staying. And there's a saying called the coronavirus during that time. I don't know if anybody remembers it, but it was starting to blow up. In fact, that week, the mandates and stuff started to come in right as I moved out there. So they were driving out with me, and there were two different ways you could go. And we hit a fork in the road where we had to choose one of them. You could come down through Maryland and all the way through Washington, D.C. to get to Alexandria, which is on the south side. Or you could go through West Virginia in the mountains, but you didn't have to go through D.C. in the city. And you'd just be kind of going up the other way. So we thought about it. And we're Midwestern folk. We don't do city driving. We like, you know, long roads with not a lot of cars there. And so we decided, you know, we're going to go through the mountains. They can't be that bad. We don't want to go through rush hour traffic in D.C. And maybe that was still the right choice. The problem was my dad had been driving for a while. And my mom, I love my mom, she has the gift of helping other people know how they should drive. Does anybody know anybody else with that gift? Right, yeah. I think it's in there somewhere. And so he said, you know what? I think it's your turn to drive, Lance. And I didn't really know what he was doing. But I started driving, and those were some of the just twistiest and longest roads. There was no cell reception. Your GPS does something cool, even when there's no cell reception. It'll still take you on the route you're supposed to go on if you have it on your phone. It'll still direct you, even though you have no service or anything going on. So we knew... If we followed the GPS, we would get to where we were supposed to go. Now, my mom didn't always believe that when I was driving. She thought I was taking her somewhere completely off the beaten path. And I said, no, we follow the phone, and the phone will tell us where we need to go. And my dad's just sleeping in the back. He says, this is great. I'm not having to drive. I'm not having to listen to other people tell me how to drive. And so we ended up finally getting there. After we got through the mountains, we were able to get to our destination. But sometimes we're in those situations, it can be scary. The map tells you to go one way, but you're thinking, I don't think this is how I'm supposed to go. Sometimes we can lose track of our navigation. We're going to see this in our text today. Our text takes place almost entirely on a ship that Paul is on, or on several ships. If you remember where we've been at in our ACT series, Paul has been arrested For crimes he didn't commit, he's been tried three or four or five different times, it seems like, at this point. And he says he's going to appeal to Caesar. Now, had he not appealed to Caesar, there was a chance he could have gotten off free. But Festus really wanted to send him back to Jerusalem. And Paul knew, if I go back to Jerusalem, they're going to try to kill me. Because they'd already tried to kill him several times before then. So Paul says, I'm going to take my chances with Caesar. He'd wanted to go to Rome anyways, and so this was the pathway for him to get there. He was just going as a prisoner. So in last week's sermon, Paul gave one final defense testimony in front of Festus and King Agrippa. And that wasn't necessarily so that they could declare him innocent, even though at the end of chapter 6, they did declare that he was innocent. They said, I don't see anything wrong with what this man has done. But he's already appealed to Caesar. And so Paul gives his defense before them. He 
gets Agrippa to the point where he says, you've almost persuaded me to be a Christian, but he still, as far as we know, never made a profession in Christ. And now Paul is on his way to Rome. So he's going by ship to the city of Rome in Italy. And we see him following the will of God. It's going to be very clear, not only in the passages we've read, but in this passage as well, that it's God's will for Paul to go to Rome, stand trial before Caesar, and share the gospel there. Now, just because that's what God's will is for Paul's life, and that's clear, doesn't mean that Paul doesn't face different dangers and twists and turns along the way. And we all know what I'm talking about. Sometimes when you're trying to follow the will of God, you know, hey, this is what God wants me to do. He's told me this is what he wants me to do in his word. But the path to get there is sometimes not what we would expect. Sometimes there's different twists and turns. And this morning, I don't think God's going to speak to us through an angel like he does to Paul later in the sermon. But God does speak to us through his word and tell us what his will is for our lives. Have you ever thought about that question? What is God's will for my life? And oftentimes we think about it in terms of buying a car or a house or a pet And just from raising two dogs, I can tell you it may not be God's will for your life to get (laughs) two dogs. But that's, uh, that's a sermon for another day, I guess. What is God's will for your life? And at the end of the sermon, we'll look at a couple different passages that tell us what is God's will for us. God's will doesn't change despite how we may feel about it. We even learned that this week, my wife and I. Sometimes we know something is God's will. We don't like it. We don't want that to be the answer. But that is God's will. And the quickest route to peace and joy and contentment is through the will of God. Remember Paul's testimony last week. Jesus says, hey, is it hard for you to kick against the goads? What does that mean? Paul is avoiding the will of God when Jesus is thrusting him into it. And so this morning what we want to see is that there is nothing that can stop the will of God. There's nothing that can stop the will of God. It's going to be accomplished. It's going to be done. I think we see that in Acts 27. Now, before we jump into the passage, I want to show us a couple things. We'll come back to one of them, which is a map. First, I want to show us this ship that Paul would have been on, a cargo-type ship that they would have used back in those days. Now, one thing you should know about sea travel back then, they didn't have yachts They didn't have cruise ships. They didn't even really have passenger ships. They had cargo ships. And what Paul's going to be on for a lot of his journey today is a grain ship that was going from Alexandria to Rome. Now, Alexandria is in Egypt. They provided a lot of the grain that was used in Rome. Remember, during this time, there's many famines that went on. And so it was important that those ships got to their destination So that people wouldn't starve. And for people to travel across sea, oftentimes they would get on these cargo ships and travel with them to their destination because they didn't have large passenger ships as well. So this would be something similar to the type of ship Paul would be on. The second thing we want to look at is a map. And we've seen several maps because Paul's going all across this area as he's sharing the gospel. But this map shows us how he gets from Caesarea, which was in Syria, just north of Jerusalem. He's going to go all the way to Italy. We're not going to look at every single part of it right now because we'll see it in our text. 
But you might think it's interesting the way that he takes to get there. And I don't want to spoil anything, but let's just say as we get near the end of our sermon, they don't quite intend to go the way that they end up going because of a storm. So let's look at Acts chapter 27, starting in verse 1. We want to see two different aspects of the will of God. First of all, we want to see that God allows difficult circumstances. This is often the language used when talking about God and trials and circumstances. It's that God allows them to happen. And so let's look at verse 1 together. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Why is Paul going to Italy? Well, that's where Rome was. That's where he would stand trial before Caesar. Now, he's taken with some other prisoners to this centurion. Remember, a centurion is a Roman officer over 100 soldiers. And we don't know what the other prisoners were on trial for, why they were going to Rome. Maybe they were standing trial before Caesar as well. Maybe they were just being transported. We don't know. But they're there with Paul. And he's with this centurion named Julius. And this Augustan cohort, we don't know very much about it, but we know it was based in Syria. So it makes sense that they would be the ones to take Paul to his trial in Jerusalem. In verse 2, in embarking in a ship of the Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. So they're taking off from here in this cargo ship. Now this is one of a couple different ships that we'll see Paul on in this chapter. And they're going about 70 miles north of Caesarea to a town called Sidon. Now we see that there's a man who goes with Paul. His name is, if you can pronounce it, Aristarchus. And we've seen him before in the book of Acts. We saw him back in Acts 20 and 21. He was a companion of Paul. He's also mentioned in Colossians 4. And you might ask, why was he there with Paul? Well, in Colossians 4, it says that he is a fellow prisoner for the gospel. So it could be that he was also a prisoner because of his faith, and he was traveling with Paul as well. Now, notice one more thing about verse 2, and this brings out the former English teacher in me. Notice what pronoun is used. It's not they, it's we. It says we set out to go. And so we see that Luke, for whatever reason, is with Paul as well. Now, we don't know if he was in prison. He could have been. We don't know if he just decided to go with Paul and see what happens in Rome. But he is with Paul, and so he experiences all of these things in the first person. If you've ever read a book, you know that it can either be in the third person talking about they did this, he did this, or the first person, I did this, we went here. And that's what Luke is doing. He's writing this from the first person, showing these experiences that he had with the Apostle Paul. So look at verse 3. The next day we put in at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends to be cared for. So they come to Sidon, like I said, which was in Phoenicia. It was 70 miles north of Caesarea. We're told that Julius, the centurion, treats Paul kindly. That word kindly comes from the Greek word philanthropos or philanthropia. And it's where we get our idea of philanthropy. Have you ever heard someone call themselves a philanthropist? They're a lover of man or lover of 
humanity. Phileo, brotherly love, is where that word comes from. And that's where our English idea of philanthropy comes from, from this Greek word. So for whatever reason, Julius wanted to do Paul a favor. And I think we see in this chapter that Julius thinks a lot of Paul. We don't know if he's met him. We don't know if he's been with him during this time. But he's going to do pretty much whatever he can to try to help Paul and make his conditions more comfortable. And that includes allowing Paul to see friends in this city of Sidon. We don't know exactly who these friends were, but they came and they wanted to be around Paul. And it says they tended to his needs. Now, Paul wasn't free. He probably still had soldiers with them. These people were allowed to go see Paul. In verse 4, And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. We're going to start seeing a theme of really bad weather for sea travel. If we can go back to that map, Alicia, I want to point out one thing about what it says when you're sailing under the lee of something. When you're sailing under the lee, it means to sail up against the land. Remember, I've said this before as Paul has been traveling. When you're in a small ship, you wanted to sail by the coast so that you could get to coast if you needed to. And you were at less of a risk of being boarded by pirates or being lost at sea because of a storm. And because of these winds, they're really hugging Cyprus. They're not going the way that they would want to so that they can get to their destination. So that's why Luke uses that word um, under the lee. Uh, This would offer them some protection. Now in verse 5 it says, When when we had sailed in the open sea across the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. So you can see that on the map, Lycia. It's really in that Galatia region. We know that Paul had spent some time there. He had had his first missionary journey really to that area. So when you read the book of Galatians, these are some of the regions that would be written to in that book. So then they come to this city of Myra, which is there. This was one of the key territories in Lycia. It was a little bit inland. And it would have taken about 400 to 450 miles to get there. So they had already had quite a journey by the time they get to this point. Now notice in verse 6, we see them transfer ships and they go to a different type of vessel. It says, Then the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. Like I said, the Egyptian Alexandrian ships would bring grain to Rome And so they would be going to Italy anyways. And the centurion is able to secure passage for these people to get on this ship. Now you might ask at this point, how many people are traveling with Paul? We don't know the exact number, but between the people that are with Paul and the centurion and the people on the ship, we find out later it's 270 people. So this is a large group of people, especially for that time, voyaging on one ship. It was a pretty sturdy ship to be able to carry the cargo and them on this journey. Verse 7, We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off of Snidus, and the wind did not allow us to go farther. We sailed under the lee of Crete off Salome. So they continued sailing. It says they sailed slowly for a couple days, and they start sailing with difficulty. 
They're trying to get to their destination. And again, it says they sail under the lee of Crete. They're sailing under it right next to the land so that they can dock if they need to. Now in verse 8, it says, Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. So they come to this harbor and they're docking there. And then they're going to stop and they're going to try to regroup and see if they need to go. Now, you might ask, why are they having so much trouble sailing towards Rome? Well, because of the time of year it was and the direction of the wind, it was actually easier to go east than it was to go west. The same journey going east would not have taken as long and they wouldn't have had as bad of winds, especially during this time. In fact, you could probably go in seven or eight days the same distance east that it would take you to go west. It would take you about, I don't know, 40 or 50 days is what some people have said. So it really was harder the direction they were going trying to get to Rome. Now look at verse 9. We're going to see a dilemma that they face. Verse 9, it says, Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Now we have to ask ourselves, why was this journey so dangerous? And what was this thing called the fast? Well, you have to think about what time of year this would have been. The fast is associated with the Day of Atonement. It would have happened during this time. The Day of Atonement that year would have fallen on October 5th. Now, during the time that they were sailing in, especially, it was risky to travel from September 14th to November 11th. It was just bad travel. You didn't want to be on the sea then. But from November 11th to March 10th, it was considered really bad travel. You especially did not want to be out there during that time. So you can start seeing this is why they're facing so much difficulty with winds and storms. And even we'll see that later because they're not sailing during the right time of year. This isn't a great time to be out on the sea. So Paul knows this. And remember something about Paul. He was a very experienced sailor. If you read Acts 18 through Acts 21, you see Paul sailed here. Paul sailed here. And he went on this voyage And we never really see him have any trouble at sea. He always has a pretty safe journey to get from one point to the other. And so Paul says, hey, I don't think we should go this way. I think we should wait it out. We should spend the winter here. This is going to be bad. We're going to lose cargo. We're going to lose people's lives. But people don't want to listen to Paul. Look at verse 11. It said the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. The centurion liked Paul. We've seen that earlier. We're going to see that later. But he doesn't necessarily trust Paul to have the best directions. He says the pilot of the ship says we should go. The owner says we should go. It's going to be fine. But think about for a second who these people were that were saying it was going to be okay. They were merchants. They were selling their grain. And they had to get to Rome. So they were going to say, yeah, we can go for sure because they needed to get their cargo there. They weren't really going to look out for what kind of storms were going to be along the way. Verse 12, 
And because of the harbor was not suitable to spend winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, not Phoenix, Arizona, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. So if you can see Crete on that map, I know it's small. They're just trying to get around the island. They're on the very eastern side of the island. They're just trying to get under there to Phoenix, and it's not that long of a journey. They said, if we can just get around here, we don't want to stay in this harbor. We can spend the winter there, and then we can go on our journey. I don't know how many of you have spent time trying to travel during storms. I myself haven't had very much luck trying to drive in storms. When I was in college in Iowa, I was interning at a church the summer of 2017, and literally the first week that I was there, we had had a really nasty stretch of storms come through one day when I was in the office. Now, these storms had come. They were pretty bad. There was even some hail damage, and then they left, and it was sunny out. And so I thought, well, the sun is out. I knew there would be some storms that would happen later on, but I need to try to get back to the apartment that I was living in during the time. And one of the things you'll notice about Iowans especially, they have so many tornadoes come through there that they just operate like life is normal. They sit on their porch and watch tornadoes. They go chasing them, and they really don't mean anything. Meanwhile, when I lived in Virginia, if there was a thunderstorm, they'd have the sirens go off because they just never had any severe weather like that. And so the sun was out. I knew I needed to get home. I knew there were more storms coming. So I drove out in my pickup truck, and I'd only gotten maybe five miles from the church. And I saw what was literally a wall of rain, like, sweeping over me. And I went from just very clear visibility, and the sun was still out, to not being able to see anything. So I thought, oh, the storms must have come early. I'm going to turn on the radio Turned on the radio and it said, if you're outdoors, this is a tornado warning, you need to get find shelter immediately. Now the problem with Iowa is that if you've ever been out, especially to eastern Iowa, they don't have anything out there. I mean, they don't have grocery stores, they don't have gas stations, it's just one house, five miles of corn, another house, and I mean, I was in the middle of nowhere. There was nowhere else that I could get. And so I tried to turn my truck around and go back the other direction, and there's some straight-line winds, and there's some hail that's starting to pour down, and I still can't remember quite what happened, but somehow a straight-line wind pushed my truck into the ditch. It was like I was driving, couldn't really see where I was going anyways, and then suddenly I'm in the ditch, and I can't get my truck out of there. And just to say how bad the winds were, I talked to a farmer later, a pig farmer. He said about a mile from my location, a roof was blown off of one of those pig farming buildings that they had that, was, that had about a thousand different pigs in there. The roof was just blown cleanly off of there. And so I'm starting to realize that this was a bad idea to come out, that I should have waited out the storm until it had passed in shelter. And also started wondering, should I have done this internship? Is this like a Jonah type thing where God doesn't want me to be out here? Is he trying to tell me I need to repent and go back home? And finally, and I don't know how he found me, the pastor ended up finding me on the side of the road, getting me back to shelter, and the storm passed. But it's one of the few moments in my life where I've literally thought, this might be it. I may not make it out of this situation. I always thought back on that 
and how just foolish it was for me to try to go out and beat the storm home when I knew there was a severe storm coming. And this is what Paul's trying to say. He says, look, this is not a great time to be on sea. You're in a risky window as it is, but if you're not careful, you're going to enter into what is a really bad time to be sailing. But because Paul's a prisoner, because he's not the pilot of the ship, he keeps on going. So look at verse 13. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along the Crete, the, along Crete close to the shore. So everything starts out great. They have this gentle wind blowing them, which is what you wanted. Everything looks fine. And notice that phrase, supposing they had obtained their purpose, they thought everything's going like we thought it should. Everything's happening like we predicted it. They lift up their anchor and they sail along this coast. But in verse 14, it says, Soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from land. Your, your version of the Bible or translation might call this a typhoon, or some even call it a hurricane. These strong winds and storms that were coming start to really separate them from the island of Crete. And so this storm starts happening, and we see them take several measures to try to get their ship to, so, to shore. Verse 15, And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. So they're trying to fight the wind. They couldn't really do that. So they just had to say, we're going to be carried away by this storm and see what happens. Verse 16, running under the lee of a small island called Kata, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. And he's saying, how does the ship have its own boat? Well, this would be a little rowboat that was already out at sea. It was tied to the boat. And they were able to get it back into the water because if they didn't, they wouldn't have it anymore. It would have blown away because of the storm. So they get the rowboat back into the ship. In verse 17, after hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing they would run aground on the Sardis, they lowered the gear and were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. So they're doing all these desperate measures to try and secure the ship and help the ship stay afloat. They were using a technique called frapping, where they were pulling different ropes that were under the planks of the ship to try to keep the ship tight against the tide. But they continue to be driven along by this. So in verse 18, where we read, they start dumping the cargo. Now this is where you know they're in trouble. They're trying to get this cargo to Rome, when you start saying, hey, we got to, maybe they've taken on water, we're not quite sure. We got to make this ship lighter. So they're starting to dump t cargo and tackle off of the ship to try to make it lighter during this time. In verse 19, and on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, our hope of, all hope of being saved was at last abandoned. So this happened for several days that they were in this nasty storm. In fact, this storm seems to be taking them with them on the sea. They're throwing cargo overboard. They can't see the sun or the stars because the storm continues to go on. They've really gotten themselves in quite a mess. And you can see on that map there, after Crete, 
They just start sailing west, but you start thinking that's not the direction you would think they would want to go in. Well, they didn't have a choice. This storm drugged them literally across the sea over in the direction where they end up sailing from there. And at this point, if you're on the ship, you're starting to think that all hope is lost like they did. Talks about later how they hadn't had a lot of food. They couldn't see the sun or the stars. They're starting to maybe regret the decisions that they'd made. There's some difficult circumstances that are happening to Paul and his companions. Think about being the Apostle Paul during this time. You've told them this was the wrong idea. This is not the way you should have gone. Do any of you do that when you're traveling? Maybe you've told someone, hey, you shouldn't go this way. They do it anyways, and then they end up, something happens or that takes longer. Sometimes you want to say, I told you so. I told you that you shouldn't have gone that way, even when it happens. So Paul is here caught at sea, and you can see how it would be easy for Paul to start doubting, and to start becoming afraid. He knows that it's God's will for him to go to Rome and to stand trial before Caesar. He knows that he's in the will of God, but yet he's probably starting to lose hope as well. We know Luke was because he says we were losing hope. Zoom out from this passage in a moment, for a moment, and remind yourself who is in control. Did any of this catch God off guard? Was God surprised by any of this? Did he say, oh no, the storm came by and I don't know how I'm going to get Paul to Rome anymore. No, in fact, God was the one who allowed this storm to happen. And he is going to work this out, we know, for his good and his glory. None of this takes him by surprise. It's all according to his perfect plan. God sometimes allows what seems like injustice. He allows suffering in our lives. He allows trials, whether it's news of the death of a loved one whether it's other things like the rebellion of a child, different trials that happen in our lives, he allows for our good and his glory. We know that all things work together for the glory of God, but sometimes we can grow grow frustrated saying, we don't know how you're going to make good out of this situation. What we want to see now is not only that God allows these difficult circumstances to happen, but in the second half of our passage, we want to see that God always accomplishes his will. God allows difficult circumstances, but he always accomplishes his will. And so we can rest in that this morning. Let's look at verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, You should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury or loss. You think, why is Paul saying, I told you so? This isn't helpful. But he's not just trying to say that. He's trying to show them that God is going to protect them and to take care of them. He says in verse 22, Yet I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God, to whom I belong, and to whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. 
So Paul, maybe at this point, was starting to lose hope, but we see that an angel of the Lord appears to him. Now, God has spoken specifically to Paul in a couple different ways in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 9, he speaks to him through this blinding light, and the voice of Jesus appears to Paul. We've seen this recounted a couple different times. In Acts 18, Paul's in Corinth, and the Lord speaks to Paul one night. I think it was in a vision. In Acts 22, God speaks to Paul again. It was Acts 23, actually. As he's having these different threats to his life, God again speaks directly to Paul to encourage him. And in the last three times, he uses the same phrase. He says, do not be afraid. You don't have to fear, Paul. Now, why was Paul to not be afraid? Was it because they knew where they were going? No, because they obviously didn't know where they were going. Was it because they had a great pilot? Well, he's obviously shown that he doesn't know what he's doing either. It was because God was in control. And notice what this angel says to him. We just read it. Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So he reminds Paul of what? He reminds Paul of the will of God. He says, Paul, you're going to go to Rome. You're going to stand trial before Caesar. You're going to share the gospel not only with him, but the other people who are in that area as well. He doesn't make promises to Paul that say, you're going to have all this health and wealth and prosperity. Your life is going to be fine. That's not true. What's going to happen to Paul when he's in Rome? Eventually, he's going to be killed. He's going to be martyred by the person he was going to see. But what the angel promises Paul is that God's will is going to be accomplished. God said, this is what I'm going to do. And that is what happens. And so Paul can not be afraid, but he can trust in what God has told him. The angel also says that he would spare the lives of Paul and the people who were with them. So this is what Paul tells him. He says in verse 25, So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. So he encourages them. And in verse 27, we see that this has been going on for several nights. It said, When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, some sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they think that they're starting to get close to somewhere. Now you say 14 nights, that is a long time to be carried away by this storm. But they think they're getting close to land. So they do something in verse 28 that seems suspicious to us, that we don't quite understand what is going on, but it helps when you understand how sea travel worked during that time. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms, and a little further on they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. A sounding was pretty much taking a long piece of rope with lead on it and dropping it and seeing how far it went until it hit something on the bottom. So the first time they did that, it was 20 fathoms. The next time they did that, it was 15 fathoms. So you can start to see they're getting closer to land. So in verse 29, And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let four anchors from the stern 
and prayed for day to come. So they say, hey, we're getting closer. The problem is we can't see anything. So we're just praying that daytime is going to come. I can remember I was traveling with one friend out to a wedding, and we were coming up to Vermont, and we'd eat McDonald's maybe two or three times on that trip. We came to Vermont, and there was a McDonald's right there. It was about lunchtime. And we thought, well, surely there's going to be some kind of restaurant in Vermont that's not McDonald's that we can eat at and get some lunch at to just have some variety. And so we drove for two and a half hours through the state of Vermont. We did not find any other restaurant that was even McDonald's. We didn't find any gas stations. We got to the point where we were about 30 miles to empty before we finally found this gas station that was tucked away somewhere. And we were looking. He was, I had my friend on his phone. He was trying to figure out. But again, we didn't have any cell reception. We trying to just find something that we can get gas at and then another place where we can eat. So finally, we fill up on gas before we hit empty. We get two and a half hours and we find a McDonald's. You know what? We ate McDonald's with no shame. It was the third time we've eaten it on that trip. And it was the best McDonald's I've ever had in my entire life because we were so hungry. We thought we weren't going to find another restaurant. So these people are anxious to get to land. They're trying to get to their destination. Now we see while this is happening, in verse 30 it says, And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. So as they're laying these anchors down, these four anchors on the ship, some of the sailors say, yeah, we're going to do that too. But really, they're lowering the little John boat from the ship, trying to escape. We don't know if they were prisoners. Maybe they just worked for them. Whatever the case was, they thought, we're going to get out of here. We're going to get to land. We're going to get away from this ship. They're trying to do it in secret. And Paul, maybe he saw them, maybe overheard them, or maybe the Holy Spirit told Paul. We're not told how he knew. But in verse 31, it says, And Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the rope of the ship's boat and let it go. So Paul says, Hey, if they go, they get off this ship, then none of us are going to be saved. I'm guessing that's something he heard from the angel of the Lord. That's something that the angel had told Paul. Because you say, how could he know for sure that they wouldn't be saved? Maybe it's something that Luke hadn't written down when the angel spoke to Paul. Whatever the case was, the centurion says, well, we'll just cut the ropes off. So the ship was, the boat was in the sea. They just cut the ropes to it and let it go into the rest of the ocean. And what that meant was everybody was on the ship together. If one person was getting off, everybody was getting off. And so this is what the centurion decides to do. Verse 33. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense without food, having taken nothing. But what we see here is that they actually had food to eat. Maybe they had some bread that was going to be used later on. So Paul says, Eat, take some food. You need to keep up your strength. Now, some people, and I've read commentators, these people have PhDs in biblical studies. They swear that Paul is taking communion on this ship with these people. I don't know why they say that. I don't know where they get that from. It makes no sense to me. 
But they would insist that this is what's happening. And Paul says, therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish off the head of any of you. And when he said these things, he took bread, giving thanks to God in the presence of all, broke it, and began to eat. Now, again, I'm not a Bible scholar. I don't have a PhD next to my name. I don't see how they would say that this is Paul taking communion with these people. What I think he's doing is eating a meal with them and praying and blessing the food like we would before we ate a meal. But that's just how I've read the passage. Verse 36, then they all, in verse 37, sorry. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. So they ate what was there. They throw the rest of the wheat into the sea to try to make the ship lighter. Verse 39. And when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they had planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable. And the stern was being broken up by the surf. They pretty much run the ship aground. They're still a little bit away from the actual shore. Verse 42, the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them would escape. Now you might say, why are they wanting to kill the prisoners? Well, there is no way they could keep them chained from the boat to the shore. They'd all have to swim. And if any prisoners escaped, it would be on the lives of the Roman soldiers. They couldn't escape. If the prisoners weren't accounted for, the soldiers' lives would be forfeit. So the soldiers said, we're just going to make sure they don't escape. We're going to kill all of them. And so you start reading this and realizing that Paul's about to be killed by these Roman soldiers. He's been the one that's really encouraged them and helped them get to the point that they're at. And now they're about to take Paul's life. But yet, God intervenes. Notice what God does. He works through this centurion in verse 43. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land. But the rest on planks or pieces for the ship. And so it was that all was brought safely to land. So again, the centurion, for whatever reason, admired Paul, wanted Paul to make it safely to his destination and allows him to live. They all swim or they float on planks. I don't know about you. I'd probably be floating on a plank to the shore. I don't think I'd want to have to swim that distance, whatever it was. And they all make it there. And we'll see in next week's chapter, really the last sermon that we're going to have in the book of Acts, how Paul gets from Malta to his destination in Rome. We see God protecting Paul during this journey. Several different times it feels like his life is in danger. We even see with the angel of the Lord speaking to Paul, I wonder if Paul wasn't getting discouraged. We don't know that. That's not what's written there. The fact that an angel speaks to Paul himself, that God sends this messenger to him, Paul is telling him, don't, or God is telling him, don't be afraid. And I don't know about you, but whenever I read scripture and I look at the life of Paul, I, I see such a courageous and bold Christian. And I can think, 
Paul never seems to be afraid, but yet time and time again we see in Scripture that God encourages Paul, says, do not be afraid. So there must have been times in his life where he needed that encouragement from God. God keeps his word. He's faithful to, to what he's told Paul would happen. Next week, we'll see him go home to Rome, where he'll share the gospel with people there. He'll have a testimony before Nero. And eventually, after the book of Acts, we know from just church history that he's martyred there. And on the twists and turns of this passages, reminded that God's faithful to his word, to what he's told us would happen. Now, what has God promised us in his word? God doesn't always promise us physical health. Some of us know that. He's not always promised us that our physical health is going to be what we want it to be. He's not promised us good finances. He's not promised us that we're all going to have the biggest bank accounts or that we're all going to be blessed financially. Some people have, and we praise the Lord for that. That's not true for everyone. God doesn't promise us that our loved ones are going to live, that they're going to make it through whatever treatments or whatever appointments that they have going on. So what promises has God made to us? When Romans 8, 28, he says that God works all things together for good. Now, is that the good that we sometimes think it should be? The answer is no, it's not. But it is for the good of his plan. I think it's funny, as he's writing those words, he says, those who he foreknew, he also predestined. Those who he predestined, he also justified. Those who he justified, he also sanctified. Those who he sanctified, he also glorified. So how do things work together for good in God's plan? Well, we know part of that is that it's God's goodness and salvation. How he's known us, how he's saved us and justified us, and how one day he will glorify us before him. God te- or Paul tells us in Romans 8, 1, that we have no condemnation in Christ. That if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you don't have to worry about feeling and facing condemnation before him. In Romans 8, 37 and 38, he tells us that we will never be forsaken by God. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. In Hebrews 4, we're told that Jesus is a great high priest who offers us mercy and grace and help in the time of need. This is, these are promises that God gives us in his word. And the truth is this morning that is that we face significant challenges and trials in our life as we're trying to do the will of God. Unfortunately, in the church today, there's some bad theology that teaches that if you have trials in your life, it's because you've sinned. If you have trials in your life, it's because you're not trusting the Lord. And this morning, that's not true. If you have trials in your life, it may not be that you've sinned or that you're not having faith in the Lord, but it could be that God is bringing those trials in your life for his glory and our good. Remember Job and his friends. Job's friends were great when he was facing suffering until they started opening their mouths. Then when they started talking, Everything started going downhill. They said, well, you surely must have sinned or else God wouldn't have done these things in your life. And we know that's not true. We will face hardships and trials 
as we try to do the will of God. As I said earlier, there's suffering that comes into people's lives. We face some of that this week. Some other people have faced so much suffering and hardship in their life that I cannot even imagine it. I could not even fathom what it would be like to go through those different situations. Not only the death of a loved one, but a family member that's walked away from the faith. Having a marriage that is broken. All these different things that happen throughout the experience of the human life. Yet none of them take God by surprise. They all are according to his plan. We must remember as we close this morning, what is the will of God for our life? So we try to wrap up this sermon this morning. What is God's will? And every now and then as I'm searching through Amazon, I'm buying books for a class or for books that I need for pastoring here. I come across a book, a new perspective on the will of God. This is what God's will is for your life. And if you read through two to 300 pages, it'll tell you, hey, this is what God's will is for you. Well, if you read the Bible, it'll say, this is God's will for your life. First of all, it's God's will that we would be saved. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it said, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You might say, why has God not come back? Is God still in control? Is he still going to fulfill his plan? And the answer is yes. But why does he hold off? It's because, that, it's because God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's God's will that we would be saved, that we would know him, that we would come to a point in our lives where we would put our faith and trust in the promise of Jesus Christ and his gospel. Along with that, it's God's will that we would read his word. 2 Timothy chapter 3 Verses 16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God would be complete, lacking nothing. What is God's will for our life? It's that we would read his word and that through that we would become more mature in him. Don't let other people tell you that, hey, there's this book on God's will and it's going to tell you what you should do. There's only one book on the will of God, and it is God's word. And we know God's will through what he's written in his word. Number three, God wants us to be sanctified. One of the most clear verses in the whole Bible on what God's will is, is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification. It's God's will that we would be sanctified. What, is it, what does that mean? We're separated from sin. We're separated to God. We've been having an issue with our dogs recently where they both want the same toy. And they fight over the same toy. And one of them will take it and run around with it. And the other one will go after him. And what do we have to do? We have to separate them. Because when they're together, they're no good. So we have to separate them and either put them in different rooms or put one of them outside or inside or sometimes I hold Pepper up and just separate her from Max so that they'll stop fighting with each other because they're only destroying things together or getting on our nerves. 
It's God's will that we would be separated from our sin and our past. But it's not just separation from something that's bad. It's separation to God and his goodness. And then lastly, it's God's will that we would be transformed. In Romans chapter 12, one of the most famous verses on God's will and on sanctification, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be, trans- do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What is the will of God? Well, when we are presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, when we are worshiping God through being transformed into what he would have us to be, and we're being transformed by renewing our minds, it says, then you may be able to discern what is the will of God. So can I stand here today and say this is one, two, three, exactly what God's will is for your life in every single detail? Well, no, but I can say this. If you're being transformed, if you're renewing your mind, if you're offering your body to God as spiritual worship, that is a great way to understand that. That is a great way to be in the will of God. This is what God wants for our lives. We do well to remember these things and to try to apply ourselves to them every day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the promise that you've given to us that you will not forsake us, that you will be with us, that nothing can separate us from your love. You promised your servant Paul this in Acts 27. When he was afraid, you encouraged him with this angel and he knew that he would get safely to shore. We pray for this same encouragement for us. We pray that you would encourage us through your word, what you said to us. We pray that we would have the faith and the confidence to do what your word says. Help us to trust in you. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.